0: We live in an Insta age, TikTok age, facey age. We live in that age where experts are telling us envy is a recognised problem. If pre- and post-COVID all the more we're facing what the experts are saying is really not just a pandemic of sickness but a pandemic of loneliness amongst people, we're also facing This epidemic of envy. Recent studies I was reading about this week suggest that social media use is not depressing in and of itself. Social media is not evil in and of itself. But it actually is a huge cause and trigger for envy. You know what it's like, don't you? In that moment, you're not sure what else to do, whether you're standing and waiting for the train at the Bendigo station or you're just at home and you're waiting to go to sleep. You open the phone, you scroll through, and what do you do? You see other people's lives are better than yours. Well, they're always better than mine. And we feel it, don't we? We feel it growing. It's like a little ember that gets kind of fanned and grows in us. Envy eats at our bones. And so here's today's question. How can I stop envy eating me up? How am I going to stop that? Because it is a common problem. It is a growing problem and it is growing in our hearts. If we're honest, how am I going to stop envy eating me up? Psalm 139, that cross reference reading we read, we read that the Lord knows you. Like he knows you better than you know you. He knows me better than I know me. He knows our hearts. He was there. He knitted us together in the womb. And he knows your mind. He knows your mental health. He knows your heart health. He knows you. And he knows that envy is never good for you. So, how can we stop it eating us up? Paul answers that question in this passage. He is an ordinary person just like you and I, and he answers some very confronting things for us. He answers it here by first starting off answering a question the Philippians have got. The Philippians, of course, get this letter, they get this book of the Bible, we get it, because what has happened is Paul is in prison again, he goes to prison a few times, and most likely he's in prison in Rome, and the Philippian church has heard about it and they're worried about him. We see the context in verse 12. He answers this kind of question they're asking. You see, what's happened is he's in prison and they've sent, as we'll see in this letter, Epaphroditus, one of the church leaders, a faithful brother. They've sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison who has encouraged him, brought a financial gift for Paul and Paul sends Epaphroditus back with this letter. He sends him back with this letter and as he writes to the church, we see in verse 12... I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I want you to know, church, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me? What has happened to me by being in prison has served to advance the gospel. Paul is enjoying the hospitality of the Roman penal system. And as he enjoys that system, in all its comforts, you know, the creature comforts of being in prison, not you could imagine him sitting there thinking, what's happening to me? Like my my whole ministry has been to travel and be free and and plant churches and plant the gospel in people's lives and share Christ. Like God has Christ himself on the road to Damascus commissioned me for that purpose. My job, he gave me my job. He gave me my job description and now it's all come to a crashing halt at the cling of a prison gate. What is happening to me? Do you know that feeling? What's happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And Paul gets it and he explains the Philippians. Friends, he says, what is happening to me is actually advancing the gospel. That's what's happening to me. See, although Satan schemes, right, and Satan has always schemed, Satan schemes to slow down the gospel advancing by slowing down gospel speaking. Although those against the gospel of Christ are trying to shut it down by shutting Paul up, what we see here is it continues to grow. It can seem for Paul that he's like stuck in that Johnny Cash song. You know that Johnny Cash song? Now, let me just change it. I'm stuck in Roman prison and the time drags on. You know, Johnny Cat, it's false in prison, but I changed it to Roman prison. Maybe you saw that. was I thought it was clever on the spot, but anyway, it's not and not impressive and not the point. Paul is stuck in Roman prison and the time keeps dragging on. There's no looking like he's getting out of this one. He's been out of prison before. Be that earthquakes in Philippi, where he was able to have an escape from prison, although he did it very much in a Christ-like way and stayed for the Philippian jailer's sake. But this one, not this one, what's happening to Paul? He really is stuck in Roman prison. But what he says is this in verse 12. The power of the gospel is counterintuitive to power in the world. How does the world get power? By enforcing it physically, putting people in prison, enforcing power, using money or influence. That's how the world uses power. How does the gospel use power? Words. Words. The word of God, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, rose for our hope. Do you think you can imprison that message? Can you shut it down? Paul wants the church to know this. Church, it can't be shut down. And why can't it be? Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, that is the praetorium, that kind of the, the Roman uh, secret service, if you like, the fed police, the SAS, the elite, It has become known even amongst the shock troops of the Roman Empire, he says, the Imperial Guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. The very ones that are holding him prisoned, perhaps chained to a guard, are now Paul's primary congregation. This is the amazing power of the gospel. See, one of the things about evil that you learn as you get older is this. Evil always overreaches. Evil always thinks it can get away with it. Evil always thinks, I will win this time. That's what keeps Satan going, doesn't it? Because if Satan just read the Bible, I'm sure he's aware of it, he'd know the end game. Anyone who's a Satanist I was reading about Satanists actually this week. I read a lot of things and I don't know why I was reading that. So I was reading about the, the, there's a Satanist group trying to get it, their, their group recognised for religious purposes. And the judge, you might have seen this, the judge threw it out and said this is ridiculous. Um, but I'd like to say, if, and, that, and, that, and that what the Satanists said is in this article is they are, they are believing in the Satan of the Bible. right? So they're not making up another sort of Satan. They're believing in the Satan. If you believe in the Satan of the Bible, just read the end bit. He loses. Badly. Satan overreaches though today. Evil always overreaches, thinks it'll win and it won't. Even if you were to imprison the the, the church planter, like if you want to count up all the leaders of the church who have been used by God in big ways, you've got to count the Apostle Paul. They've imprisoned this church leader All the world can muster against gospel proclamation, all the weapons of this world, the gospel actually is not held, and it's not even held in a status quo. You bring the weapons of the world against the gospel, it doesn't just sit there in a kind of a maintenance state, all the weapons of the world of the gospel, and you know what they do? They actually advance the gospel. You bring the world and all the evil against the gospel, and the gospel grows. It eats evil for breakfast. And friends, we need to see this when things are happening to us. You see, the gospel doesn't advance despite our circumstances. You know, I think sometimes we we see things happening to us and we wonder, how can the gospel advance here? It's just getting harder. How can it advance? No, the gospel advances through our circumstances. In fact, if you just notice in the Bible and look at the world, the gospel advances when things get harder. Yes, it advances when things are easier. Yes, when there's freedoms of liberties. Of course the gospel advances. That's a natural outcome. But we tend to think, well, if it gets harder, that's because it's going get harder for the gospel. And Paul wants to show, actually, no, that's how powerful the gospel is. can I ask you this? What has happened to you that has really advanced the gospel in your life? You might look at your sufferings, the things that have been setbacks, and you might be asking, what is happening to me? What's happened to me? Or well, this has happened to me. Well, perhaps, could you just reflect upon that? What has happened to you that you have once seen as a real difficulty, a trial, a suffering, a setback? Look at that thing. What has happened to you? And now ask this. How has that actually been even used by God counterintuitively, counter the world? How has that been used by God powerfully to advance the gospel of grace in your heart, in your life? You wouldn't have asked for it to be sure. You wouldn't have designed it that way. I sure wouldn't have. In the last couple of years, we've all gone through the different sufferings, but how has that been used somehow? Could you see, actually, what has happened to me has meant that I've actually returned to the Lord. What has happened to me has actually meant I've had a new grasp on the reality of Jesus and his grace. What has happened to me has actually meant I've understood that I can have joy even in sorrow. What has happened to me has meant I've actually believed that God is actually sovereign. Before I said, oh yes, he's sovereign, you know, he's in control, but now I actually and functionally believe it in my life. What has happened to you that means the gospel has advanced in your life for you? where Satan would want to get you and say, I'm going to shut the gospel down for you by making life harder. What has happened in that moment that the gospel has gone greater for you? You see, our fallen world, our experiences, and the world's textbook says, when circumstances hinder us, it's over. But if we actually look at the gospel, in the death and resurrection of Christ... We can actually say this even in hard times. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you can say in any hard difficulty, this is not how it ends. This is not where it ends. Because I know the end game. I know Christ. Even when others might preach Christ from envy and rivalry. This is the heart of this passage this morning, the scene here that Paul writes about. Look at verse 15. Paul has had to wrestle with what's happening to him, but then there's something else. Not only is he in prison, but then we see something else happening for him. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm here for the defense of the gospel. So he's already said, we we saw this, and he's already said in verse 14 that him being in prison has actually emboldened people, it's strengthened other Christians to speak about Jesus, because they see this and go, well, if, if Paul's in prison and he's not afraid, I can be not afraid, and I'm out of prison. I can speak about Jesus too, I can give my testimony and share about Christ working in my life, because if Paul's not afraid, what have I got to be afraid of? But then he says this, there are people that do that, they they preach Christ because they're strengthened by seeing my suffering. But then there's this other group of people, and here's where it gets weird because we can hardly comprehend how this could happen, but it's happening. He says, verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment is that possible how is it possible there are people who preach Christ out of selfish ambition out of envy out of pretense how does that even work maybe it is because these others and we don't know much about them maybe they think if we preach Christ we get our platform now because Paul's out of action we'll just replace him. maybe they think if we preach Christ that'll actually afflict Paul in prison because it'll stir up prison life for him and make it harder. We never really liked Paul. You know, he was doing all the church planning. He he was kind of, we never really liked him. And so for some reason, they're wanting to preach in such a way, even preach Christ, out of envy to make it harder for Paul. Envy is a desire to have what someone else has. And it's a powerful motivation for people. It's coupled with that other thing called pride. Pride is one of those sins in your life that does this to you. I'm not here. I'm not proud. You're blinded by pride. You you can't see that pride exists in your heart. Envy's like that too. It grows until all of a sudden you see it there. It's a powerful motivation. Paul's already in affliction in prison, but here are these envious preachers. Perhaps they're thinking, if we preach up a storm with the the freedom that we have now in the pulpit then they'll put the screws on Paul in prison because look at these Christians, they're preaching and they'll just make life harder for Paul in prison maybe that's what they're thinking perhaps they're just ambitious that these ambitious rivals would get more recognition now now that Paul's in prison people will look to us They'll, they'll like us and for Paul He is an ordinary person like you and I. Paul is a a saint, a Christian. But he's also a sinner like you and me. And he's also a sufferer like you and me. Paul is not Jesus. Which means for Paul, he knows, and he often admits in his writings, he knows that he could have that twinge of envy himself. Wouldn't it be such a temptation... To hear and see of these preachers out there doing their thing, but he's stuck in prison. Wouldn't it be such a temptation to be, to feel that envy growing? Not only that, but they're doing it to stir up trouble for him. The temptation for Paul would be to feel envy himself, and he's got to wrestle with this and work through this. And this is Paul. If you read Paul, his writings, and he, he writes lots of letters in the New Testament, he writes his heart on his sleeve. He writes how he feels. This is Paul who tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 of the struggles he faces. One of my favourite books is 2 Corinthians. And you read in 2 Corinthians 11, he's got this whole list of all the struggles that he faces in ministry. He's got shipwrecks. He's got being stoned, being imprisoned. But I love this because at the end of this list, he says this in 2 Corinthians 11. It's kind of his trump card. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Paul admits weakness. He admits anxiousness. He admits anxiety. Now get this, this is the same person who writes Philippians 4 verse 6. We use that as a verse whenever you're in a fix, Philippians 4 verse 6. In Philippians 4 verse 6, he basically says in Philippians 4 verse 6 that don't be anxious about anything but prayerful about everything. So the same person who says in Philippians 4, don't be anxious, writes in 2 Corinthians 11, I get anxious. I'm anxious. I have anxiety. Why? Why? Because the best way to help those who are anxious is to admit your own anxiousness and where I get help. Just schooling people on, don't be anxious. You need to be more prayerful. Just scolding people on, you know what your problem is? You're anxious because you don't pray enough. That's not going to work. And it's not honest. He's honesty from Paul. He's honesty from me who has faced anxieties. We can go to Christ and get help. It is Paul who has a strained relationship with the Corinthian church. We don't know if these others preaching out of pretense and selfish ambition and envy. We don't know if this is a Corinthian particular issue or it's a Roman church or it's particularly in the Philippi church, but it's well known. And Paul is well known at speaking to these things. To the Corinthian church, he says this, because the Corinthian church have got all the gifts. They're a big church. They're a mega church. They're a powerful church. And yet they're a church full of pride and envy and they play the comparison game. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1... One of your problems is this. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. And then some of them go, Oh, yeah, but tell you what, guys, I got a better one than that. I follow Christ. As if Christ is used in the comparison game. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he says this if you want to play the comparison game, everyone loses. Like if you play that game, you're going to lose. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10. Verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who are commending themselves. But get this, but when they compare themselves by one another, they are without understanding. If you compare yourself or you're comparing people to one another without understanding, When you play the comparison game, you lose. Paul, who planted the Corinthian church, shepherds them through immaturity and sin, including pride. He shepherds them through boasting in the platform preachers that exist of that day. I think Paul, if he came to our day, if somehow there was a time machine and Paul ended up in our day... I think he would be very uncomfortable with Bibles that have a person's name on them, like the Russ Grinter Study Bible. I think Paul would be very uncomfortable with whole ministries named after a particular person. I think Paul would be very uncomfortable with this whole culture that we developed, even amongst Reformed Evangelicals that says, let's platform a person, and then when they fall, they really fall, and people, it's a disservice to the gospel. Gospel ministry is not, and we keep saying this friends, it is not the shape of you being the boss on the platform. It is the shape of the cross, it's cruciform. It's not you being the boss, it's you being a servant, a slave. And Paul, of all people, feels these afflictions of the heart. Yes, he's in prison, he feels the chains. But you know what he feels most, as he says? The internal struggle of seeing this envious ministry happening. Do I not feel the temptation to envy? He is aware of it himself. So that, what does Paul do? Paul goes to Christ and lets Christ do the heart surgery. And we see that that's exactly what's happening in this passage in verse 18. This is a hard issue, friends. Getting glory, elevating ourselves is a common thing, not just for preachers, not just for those up front or in public, We're in a federal election at the moment. Did you know this? I haven't really been paying attention because I find at the moment the culture of our federal leadership distasteful. I would just love one day there to be a politician, as much as they're put down and slandered, to stand up and say, thank you, let me be honest, I've got some problems. I'm at fault in many ways. I've just got an idea I'd like to float with you and see if you like it too. I would like someone to stand up and instead of mocking someone else or remocking mocking and retaliating, to just stand up. Instead of putting other people down to try and elevate themselves, do you know that we can all notice that's what you're doing? I would like someone to stand up in humble servant leadership who's willing to not be voted in if the, for the sake of having a genuine idea that helps our fellow humanity. But this is not electing for an election. This is a pulpit. That illustrates this. If it happens in politics, is it possible it enters the church? Yes. Why? Because humans enter the church. The human heart, as Calvin said, is a factory of idols and one of them is envy. This is a hard issue and we don't just do this at a public level or politicians don't do this. You watch a group of people in a circle having a conversation over morning tea today and I pray this does not happen in our church but you watch it happen when anyone gets to church. What do people do? We do it subtly, don't we? We put someone else down so as to elevate ourselves up. We compare people to one another. Oh, you're not as good as that person over there. Why would that need to be said? These are the symptoms of an unhealthy heart. Envy eats us up. We compare ourselves. We perform. We outperform. And It messes with our motivations. Envy and rivalry has no place in preaching like drinking alcohol has no place in flying an aeroplane. And so Paul responds with this, Christ is proclaimed and so we rejoice. I want us to look at Paul briefly before we look at our own hearts, because I know we're not all Paul and we're not all preachers, and we're not all in ministry, but this is written for the church. This is not a book or a section of a book, of a letter written, well, this is just for the ministry leaders. This is written for the church at Philippi, it's written for the church of reforming. But look at verse 18, because here's where we get the help. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He says it twice, just in case you missed the first one. And you've got to ask the question how? Paul is concerned about envy, but he's not consumed by it. Paul could rebuke people when he needed to. You read Galatians. If Paul wanted to rebuke false teaching, He starts that letter with, I am astonished. If he wanted to rebuke false teaching, he could. If he wanted to correct unhealthy doctrine, he could. Read Timothy, Titus, Corinthians. Yet this one, he's able to gently correct and show how our hearts can get help. And it's because of the gospel. Paul, the preacher of Christ, shows what matters most is Christ is preached. If you just bear with me, I've got two little illustrations that are about a preacher, but it's a preacher you may have heard of. No, it's about Charles Spurgeon. I've got two stories that come to mind about Charles Spurgeon. There's lots of stories about Charles Spurgeon, and uh, some of them perhaps are mythical, uh, and some of them perhaps are real, but I, I, I do believe these two are real, and they sound real. In fact, they sound so real, you could imagine it wouldn't just be about Charles Spurgeon this would happen. The first one is this. There are some American preachers that had heard of Spurgeon because, you know, he was well known as a preacher. And back then they didn't have TV, and so more people perhaps checked out preaching. I don't know, but these guys from America came to London to listen to all the preachers of London, to learn from. And so they went to this first church, and they, big church, a large church, platform preacher, well known, and they came out apparently saying, What a great preacher! What a great preacher! The next week they went to Spurgeon's church and they came out saying, what a great saviour. What a great saviour. Friends, can I tell you as a preacher, that's what I'd prefer to hear. And I don't hear anyone saying great preacher, but I'm saying, talk about Jesus, because that's what the sermon was about. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about the preacher. It never is. The preacher is the postman. They're just delivering the message. And the other story is similar and it goes like this, there was a guy, he was an agnostic actually in Spurgeon's day, his name was Herbert Spencer, so he didn't particularly nail down whether he believed in God or not but it was popular to go and hear Spurgeon and so he went to hear Spurgeon preach, came back to his workplace and his assistant asked him this question he asked Herbert Spencer, what did you think of him? And Herbert Spencer said, what? what? As he sort of stared into the distance thinking and pondering, think of Who? And his assistant said, what did you think of Charles Spurgeon? And Herbert Spencer said, oh, I haven't been thinking about Charles Spurgeon. I've been thinking about Spurgeon's Jesus. Paul is just like you and me. He is a sinner and a sufferer. He knows the temptation to pride and envy. And yet, did you notice in this passage... There's two things I want you to notice in this passage. The first is this. Every sentence of this passage, he speaks about Christ or the gospel or the word. Every single sentence has Christ in it. It literally is all about Jesus for Paul. And here's the second thing to notice. As you read it, what does Paul keep doing as an emotional response? Rejoice. In fact, rejoice is on repeat. It's why we call this series Joyful Community, because it's on repeat in this letter. You look at verse 18, Michelle read it there twice. It should be read that way. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Then you look at chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And then you look at chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He keeps going to Jesus. Here is how we stop envy eating our hearts. We go to Christ and we rejoice in Christ. And how do we do that? We actually look at what Christ has done for us. The antidote to envy is finding joy not in the thing your heart thinks will find joy in, but to find it in Christ himself. Paul can say this. If Christ is proclaimed, even from envious mouths then people get to hear Jesus, but you know what? So do I. My heart needs most of all to hear Christ. Which means now, friends, we can see what won't work for you. What do we try? What do we try and deal with our heart problems with? You can't stop the problem of envy eating you the world's way. What's the world's way? Well, one major option the world says is this, and it's common, I've heard it before. When when envy's coming in at us, what do we say? We, we, we teach ourselves to say, I don't care. I don't even care. I don't care about what they're saying. I don't care what they're doing. It doesn't work. Just saying to envy, I don't care, is, is, is like trying to drown an eel. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. But an eel is slippery, and they live in the water. Envy is slippery like that, and it lives in your heart. To just say, I don't care, doesn't stop it. It's still swimming around. No, no, no. You can't stop envy by willpower. You need joy power. You need your heart to be lit up with what Christ has done for you. You see, Christ is the antidote to the poison and punishment of envy because your sin of envy will eat you up but instead, at the cross, it ate him up. It ate away to his life. He was treated the way you and I would deserve to be treated. Your envy that would make your bones rot was laid on Jesus' shoulders at the cross and he died for it and more than that, he defeated its power. He broke its power so it does not have to eat you up. Jesus actually changes everything. Did you notice in this passage, as Paul mentions Christ every single time, he does it for us. Because every single circumstance you face, you can actually know what is really happening to you is advancing the gospel if you keep going to Christ. Every time something bad happens to you, every trial, every suffering, every heartache, every affliction, every envious moment that you face, if you go to Christ, the gospel will so advance in your life, your heart health can't help but improve. And you'll rejoice. He loved us to the end. He knows our hearts, He knows our struggles, He knows yours. He knows that we need one another. It's why we need joy in Jesus in community. Because the very people that once lived their lives in pretense or in selfish ambition, well, they then come to Jesus, they get their hearts changed, and they now live not being envious of one another, but friends encouraging one another. You know what we call that? It's got a cool name. It's called church. The very people in this church who once all of us, me included, have come from that envious life are now moved by Christ into a life which liberates us and frees us to actually think of ourselves less and look at each other and encourage one another and not put each other down and not tear each other down to lift myself up, but to look at each other with love, the kind of love that Jesus has and says, I'm here for you to encourage your heart. It's called church. It's a joyful community. And because we get to be part of Jesus' church, we have every reason to rejoice. Let's say it again. Let's rejoice. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our envy is more than skin deep. It goes to our bones. It flows from our hearts. So help us only because you can. As we now sing, we're asking this. Give us minds like our saviour Jesus, who made himself a slave. Give us hearts like the king of heaven who served the ones he made. Fill us with his grace. Fill us with his love. Make us like the humble one. The humble son of God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.